Kingsley, thank you so much for stopping by and having a chat with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jamie. If you could just tell exactly what your role is at FTSE Russell. So I'm the, uh, the global head of our index investments group for FTSE Russell. And what we do is we focus on every bit of the client uh, market participant area where there's an index, an investment linked to an index. So it could be anything from ETFs to passive mandates, structured products, derivatives, mm -hmm. and really how do we grow that business, how do we uh, raise AUM and launch new interesting products? So if I could start by talking about ETFs, back when I was a portfolio manager in 2008 to 2012, there's several hundred ETFs, but now we're talking like almost 10,000. So I wanted to know, do you think this rise in ETF is going to continue? What areas are most people interested in? I was thinking that because rates are where they are, is there more interest in bond ETFs? And I'm just interested if you give us a bit of color about the world of ETFs today. Okay, there's a few things in there we can unpack. So, yeah, look, it's it's a phenomenon of this generation of finance. You know, the absolute explosion of ETFs and index, or what people might call it passive investing. It's grown huge. It's grown exponentially. And I think, you know, the trends, are, you know, systemic trends are going to continue. Probably not in the, the volume of ETFs. So not just more and more ETFs, but really growing, growing the size. So we see big ETFs dominating the inflows because they build up a whole ecosystem around them. So mm. um, more AUM makes them more liquid. They become more easy trading instruments. They become trading tools in their own right. I mean, I think one of the interesting things we've seen is from the old days of, of people using index and ETFs, it, was, it tends to be this sort of long-term buy and hold, personal mm -hmm. choice stick there. As they've grown to such size and become such trading tools in their own right, we actually see a really interesting aspect. A lot of active managers, hedge funds, really different market participants being huge users of ETFs because they can then express a view. And, you know, there's been a lot of different views and macro events going on the last few years yeah. to quickly uh, express a view on the market rather than trying to pick individual stocks. So they may say they want to go long or short a country or a sector or a style or a size. And it's very easy, it's cheap for them to do that through ETFs. So I think having started as a sort of long-term buy and hold tool, they've evolved into a trading tool in their own right, which all of the market participants are now using. And I think that you know, facilitates that growth and that ecosystem around them. To answer the first part of the question, yes, we see the growth continue, but in, in more new and interesting areas. Are the more nuanced ETFs, um, do they have quite high expense ratios? Because obviously that would be a sort of deterrent from trading ETFs. I know particularly for hedge funds who want to keep their costs down. Yeah, absolutely. So um, price compression in, in index investing has been a huge theme. It's, it's driven mm. so much change in asset management. You can now buy large cap equity for pretty much free three basis points to hold a, you know, a big... And what would it have been like five, ten years ago? I mean, it's, it's always been coming down. It's been it? coming down consistently, but, you know, people have just got increasingly comfortable with just that fixed income can work in an ETF form. And I'll talk about what happened through COVID in a second. And secondly, obviously, at the moment, you know, the rate environment, people can actually get a yield. So yeah. they can actually um, get some return there. So that's driven a lot of more recent interest in fixed income. But there has always been a question that, on the equity side, you know it's a tradable, it's a liquid underlying. On a stock exchange, you can see the price. But the question when fixed income ETFs was because it's OTC, how would that work when an ETF is trying to hold all these bonds underlying it? And a lot of those don't trade very often. How do you have the price? How would that work in a, in a difficult environment? So you know, it had an easy run, but then it came to COVID, sort of March 2020, fixed income markets froze up. There was no trading. Mm. And it was a real testing moment for fixed income ETFs. And actually what they did is they came through so strongly that 
they've now kind of passed that test and, and seen a lot more investment. And what we saw was even when the underlying bonds weren't trading, the fixed income ETFs above them were trading and, and passing hands. So it actually became a sort of price discovery tool for the underlying. So the, the ETF started leading the price of the bonds rather than the other way around? Well, it's a, it's a way to indicate what the, what the price yeah. of the bond is because the underlying is never, if it's never trading, mm. but people were then thinking what's the appropriate price for the, for the ETF. And it, and it came through that, the, the trading continued in the ETFs because of the, the distinction that, that you didn't have to trade the underlying. Mm. Um, I mean, one point I'll point out sort of linked to this, this sort of trading actual ETF as opposed to the underlying uh, investments is that recently, in fact, last year we saw in the US trading of ETFs was 30% of the market of total stock market turnover. Wow. So huge amount. Um, and it has, it's been growing slightly, but over the last five years, it's only come up from sort of 25 to 30%. So not huge growth. It's not certainly not proportional to the way we've seen the AUM go up. Mm. But then when you unpack it a bit further, of that 30%, actually, it's nearly all in a, what we'd say the secondary market. So the ETF units themselves changing hands, I not see. the underlying. So mm. actually 85% of the turnover comes from people just trading the ETF mm. and only 15% the, the underlying, which it comes, you know, people you'll see in the press a lot about people asking, does ETFs and the trading and index investing uh, increase volatility? But a lot of it, they're only trading ETF units themselves, not mm. the underlying components. So just sticking with um, uh, fixed income ETFs for a second, as you say, you know, short rates up around 5%. Is that where you're getting a lot of attention in terms of volume into those products? And what products can get in there? I mean, you know, you could go out and um, you could buy three-month treasuries at whatever they are, 5, 5.1%. But what will you be getting in, in money market ETFs right now? I mean, is it comparable to that? Yeah, so I mean, take it, taking a step back, the, what we've seen as the flows into fixed income ETFs, it's really at the early stage of, of the sort of innovation and evolution. It's very basic, vanilla, US um, govies, you know, investment grade. That's a huge volume of flows, mostly into the US, mostly into sort of stable, what we would consider vanilla investments. Mm -hmm. um, what we've not seen yet, but it's starting to come, is the innovation and people thinking, what else can we get? Where can we go? So, I mean, of course, you have emerging markets and so on. But beyond that, on the equity side, we've had years and years of ESG mm -hmm. type of investing, uh, factor investing, thematic. Mm -hmm. And that's a really early stage, both on the sort of the research side, but also the sort of implementation side in fixed income. So we're beginning to see a, a huge amount of interest there. In fact, last year in Europe, of all the flows into fixed income ETFs, 50% uh, of them were into sustainable or ESG ETFs. Wow. Tiny fraction in the US, we're into, we're into the ESG. But Europe is really leading the way and that, that's both the, the equity and, and fixed income. And actually this year, inflows into fixed income ETFs have overtaken equity for the first time ever. Hmm. It's sort of been catching up last year was, uh, and the year before, sort of getting from sort of 20%, 30%. But this year, it's over 50% of the flows have gone into fixed income. So it's a whole new world of people, uh, things for people to explore because there's been a long a long-held view that the best way to access fixed income is through active. Mm. Um, and, and there's definitely still a place for that, and you can definitely still find out performance. But people just got comf comfortable with the kind of the index and the ETF uh, approach. Just touching on active versus passive investing, um, it feels like passive investing just had such an incredible run from really about 2010 onwards all the way through to the pandemic. And a lot of that, in my humble opinion, seemed to be driven by... Um, 
global rates really coming to zero, correlations coming very close to one, which meant passive investing was a much more attractive proposition because it was getting tougher to, to beat the market and you might as well pay low fees and markets just kept going up. This is on the equity side, of course. Do you feel like now that there are so many macro headwinds that we're in a point of like quantitative tightening that we might actually see a return back to active management and passive investing might become less popular? There's definitely a lot of people saying that, and, and, and there will always be people saying, you know, pr pushing one or the other. You know, we support both. We have, a, you know, a huge volume of our clients are active users as well as sort of passive users. Yeah. Um, it, at the end, it all comes down to really performance and fees. In any environment, yeah. if the manager can show outperformance and their fees That's uh, worth the fees. Okay. The challenge has always come, if you don't have outperformance, especially if you have high fees, people look at the options and they know, well, if I can't get outperformance, at least can I cut mm. down my fees? So I think there's always still that driver. I always think there'll be definitely space for active management and outperformance, and we need to have price discovery. Of course, the more passive it becomes, people say uh, markets become less efficient, therefore it should open up potentially more spaces for active managers to outperform. Yeah. Um, and actually, you've been using a term interchangeably between sort of passive investing and index investing. And actually, I would I'd probably draw a distinction because mm. any use of an index or choice of an index, anything beyond the kind of the broad market, most broad market market cap benchmark, it becomes an active decision whether you want to allocate more to one country or another, or you choose ESG or you don't, yeah. or size. So the idea that it's passive only really applies if you go. I want to just buy the whole market and just and the S and P five hundred yeah. or the FTSE one hundred. Yeah. And we've seen it's really become a spectrum, so it's not really a binary active passive now. So you know we've had and I wouldn't like to use a term, but just for people's reference, smart beta we would say um, you know factor investing. Yeah, uh, and, and really that's halfway between. And then we see you know active strategies on the kind of the quant systematic side, which which are kind of very close to a sort mm -hmm. of type of index. In fact, we've had um, some big active managers before who've come to us with a very successful active strategy and then said, do you think you could build this into an index form? And we have done. They've launched ETFs off the back of it and they've proved very successful. Mm. But still employing that kind of, sometimes it's a, it's a rotation between uh, factors based on sort of macro environment. Sometimes it's uh, you know, a, a low vol strategy. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, they've seen they can do that. Okay. Um, we're talking a lot about the pros of, of ETF trading and clearly there, there are many and it's getting uh, better and better every year. What about the cons of ETF trading? I'm here to talk about the cons of ETF trading. Well, let me... Let me, yes. let me no, um, no, no, but look, absolutely. We have to be aware of it, right? Um, but let me, let me throw something at you. Yeah. Tell me how this works because if we go way back to what shareholders were originally meant to be, owners of the company, um, you know, active participants in the company's decisions. And ETFs uh, take the ultimate shareholder one step further away. So for example, when it comes to things like AGMs, when it comes to things yeah. like, like votes, how does it work? Because I think, and I'm not an expert in this area, but there's only a few companies in charge of the proxy voting. So when it comes to ETFs, how is that how does that mechanism work efficiently so that shareholders, their votes are represented correctly? It's a very valid question especially in a world where people are thinking more about uh, corporate engagement and potentially ESG and these kind of things, if the amount of index investing is increasing, how do you have any positive influence on company decisions? Mm. 
Now, there's, there's, there's different ways you can do that. So one, the obvious way people have, have done through the years is just divestment. So if you don't like what a company's doing, you can sell the shares and, and that kind of movement out can kind of influence behavior. But not if you're part of the Obviously, ETF. Exactly. So for an ETF or anyone tracking an index, you can't sell it. You, you build up tracking error and it, and it wouldn't work. But there are other ways. So divestment is one approach. So engagement with the, the management and, and ultimately to get to an end of how you're going to vote in the meeting. As you say correctly, yes, you have uh, the ETFs who are now the big ETF issuers are the, the biggest shareholders in all the companies around the world. How do they vote and how do they mm. you know, enfranchise the end investors? So what we've seen uh, increasingly over the years is these big fund managers and, and ETF providers really building up their corporate engagement teams, mm. um, refocusing on corporate uh, governance and how to, to be engaged as an active shareholder and interestingly now we've seen them start to roll out ways of of offering uh, choices on the votes to the actual end investors mm -hmm. and obviously because of the the volume of people and the number of companies it's a big uh, technical uh, challenge but now they've started to to go through that to be able mm -hmm. to give end investors a choice and I, I think you know the way to scale this is not to vote on every single resolution of the 3,000 companies in your ETF, but but really take a stance on how you approach certain in, the principles, a based approach, basically. Mm -hmm. um, it's still, I mean, and this is always a question whether an individual investor holds a company directly or through uh, an ETF or mutual fund is uh, how much engagement is an individual person on the street going to have an opinion. Mm. But at least now, if this mechanism kind of keeps expanding, they will have that ability to have that choice. And, and yes, so there are shareholder, the big shareholder companies, uh, proxy voting companies to do this, and they can kind of set up those uh, buckets, those principles. But again, it's a, it's it's definitely an area of, uh, you know, focus and interest in the whole market and for us yeah. to see how, how that's going to evolve. Okay. You mentioned you're in charge of quite a few different areas um, in terms of the products that FTSE Russell offer. How about structured products? What falls into that bucket? Structured notes has been a huge, a huge area for, for us and a huge growth for index. So typically aimed at the kind of the, the wealth advisor, high net worth kind of market. And this is an area where we've seen huge innovation because unlike a, a big passive or pension fund or mm. ETF who has to take a really long term view and these things, billions of dollars take time to set up. For structured products, they can turn around these products um, in a week, couple of weeks, mm. get them out and really capture themes in the market. So we've, you know, this this is ripe for kind of innovation. So, I mean, mm. the, the recent sort of topics people have been talking about is sort of biodiversity, which really comes to the fore in the media. So that's, that's gained interest. How can you, is there even the data to approach, uh, you know, getting a, getting an exposure to these type of companies? But what we we really think about is this whole ecosystem of the users of, of, of index products. So in the old days, we might build an index, give it to a client, they launch a fund or an ETF, and, and that's kind of it, we walk away. But now, mm. The success really for a, an index is not about a single product and the methodology behind it. It's about the, the ecosystem around it. So, for example, having liquid futures derivatives on an ETF means investors can then hedge their exposure. Yeah. Um, if the asset owners and the wealth advisors understand the index and the methodology, they can become more comfortable investing in it. Mm. Um, and it builds up the big popular ETF, uh, indices around the world. You see a big liquid e ecosystem around them. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, we're starting to see that from the, you know, the old traditional benchmarks, we're starting to see these ecosystems evolve around sort of 
uh, sustainable in, in ESG benchmarks, which mm. is something brand new. Going on to a slightly different topic of AI, either personally or professionally, I've asked others this as well. Are you excited about it? Are you nervous about it? Where do you, where do you stand? Uh, personally, I, I'm definitely on the positive side. I think you know there's always potential pitfalls and people using it the wrong way. Mm. But look over history, you can't hold back innovation and technology. It's going to be here. So it's really how we handle it and how we put it to the best use. Um, like, I guess, all industries, we're looking at how this potentially could impact investment in indices and so on and trying to think through the different applications. I mean, one, one interesting thing is people say, can you build an AI index? So firstly, what does that mean? So mm. you can definitely build now a type of thematic index that's exposed to companies that work in. So, so let me ask about yeah. that, because if somebody did come to you and say, I want to build an index where I just have as much exposure to AI as possible, would you go out there and say, okay, how many companies should be in this index? First of all, call it 100. Are there 100 companies with 20% of their revenues directly coming from AI innovation? Uh, is, are those the kind of conversations you have? I'm just interested how you go about constructing these. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, these days, people don't buy an index off the shelf anymore. <laughs> those days are gone, So, uh, which makes it very interesting for us. But also, you know, it's um, a challenge in terms of sort of getting the data and, and doing yeah. this. So, so very much everything is customized. Mm. And... So for that, yes, we would we would look at a lot of generally back and forth with the client to see what's the best approach and you know the size of the benchmark they might want, the mm. volatility they'd be comfortable with, and then what sort of data is available to try and do this. And you know, I, I've seen some commentary and, and, and analysis recently that the more often a CEO mentions AI in their quarterly earnings report, the better the, the proportional return. Yeah, I'm price. sure. So you got to be careful. Like, is this data true? Is this company really exposed to right. AI? Um, but there are obviously definitely companies who are, and we've seen that in the video of this example. So yes, that, that's exactly the type of thing you could do. So that's in, in, building an index. If someone said, I want to be exposed to the AI revolution, for example. And then I suppose the question we're also asked is, could you build an index that's just, or could you have AI build an index itself? Mm. Now, I think you, certainly you could. Always with AIs, I think the way that, you, know, you set it up and the way you ask the question, which is done by a human, mm. heavily influences the outcome. But another point to make about indices is a key part, as well as the ecosystem evolution, is really the kind of the governance, the transparency, People don't want to be surprised by what happens with their index. They want to understand the rules, mm. which companies can go in or out because they need to. They don't want to be surprised by their benchmark. And so it raises the question: People can look at all of the index rules for any any benchmark provider, and they're published, and they can predict what's going to happen, and they can mm. think if this country gets promoted from emerging to developed, or this this company goes from a small cap to a large cap, I can predict what's going to happen, and I can trade around that. If that, if you had an index built by AI, the question is, why did that company go in? Why did that country change classification? So definitely see what happens. Undoubtedly, people will build indices made out of AI, I'm sure. Totally left field question, but I'm just interested in your answer. How do you feel about London as a financial, <laughs> right. as a, as a financial center? Are you bullish on it becoming, now that it's out of the EU, a bigger center, financial hub? Geographically, it's situated perfectly. Maybe our boy Rishi, he can come good and, and, put, and, and pull the economy up. How do you feel about London? I'm sure there's some law that after any length of conversation, something turns up about Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, the Jamie McDonald law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's been so much debate about the, the impacts of 
Brexit and London losing its status and, and everyone moving over, you know, losing everything to Europe. We've not seen that at all. And one of the challenges for Europe, uh, the other financial hubs in Europe, is there's no single dominant hub where everyone will go to Frankfurt or everyone goes to Paris. So what we've really seen, it's not really anything to do with Europe, is things going to the US, obviously. Mm. You know, listings has been an obvious one, but just business and trade. So whereas people often overreact to these things, I think the effect of Brexit one way or another hasn't been as big as the, the doom mongers on one side mm. or the, you know, the, the people supporting it on another, as I said. And a lot of things have just carried on. Mm. People just been practical and got on with life. Mm. Um, so no, I am overall, I'm bullish of London because again, I, I say the ecosystem on, on indices, but the ecosystem of just finance, as you mm. know well, right? Once you've got those kind of, and it's beyond the standard, the consultants, the lawyers, the accountants, everybody in there as well, as well as all of the bankers and asset managers. It's just such a, a, a volume. I think the risk is not, London losing out to Europe, it would be to the US or much yeah. more likely to Asia, actually. Yeah. And question about what happens mm. with trade moving to Asia as well. I mainly ask you because I'm trying to know when to time my move back, you see. <laughs> and if there are still Brexit conversations going on, then I... I mean, I we can't know. go into tax advice as well here. That's <laughs> way above my expertise level. Kingsley, it's been so much fun chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks for stopping by. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.